0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We continue on in our study on the church or what is called ecclesiology. We're trying to hit the various aspects of the church as to the church's status before the Lord, the purpose of the church, the mission of the church. We have studied thus far that Christ is the builder of the church. It isn't the church that necessarily builds itself. It is the church that is doing the work that God has appointed them to do. And it is the Lord that is adding to their number as such should be saved. As the scripture affirms to us, the Lord Jesus said, I will build my church. We do not try to build the church on marketing techniques or any other avenues that would try to lure people in. We want to be faithful unto the calling that God has given to the church to proclaim the good news of the Gospel and Christ Himself be the one who builds it. We talked about as well how the church is set apart to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people that even now, as may, we may not feel it, of course, at times, but even right now, you are set apart as holy before the Lord. You are called saints, which are holy ones. That's what the word means. At this particular point, even in our existence, where we are not fully holy, where we are not fully just or righteous, the Lord says, you are mine and you are now set apart from my holy use. You are holy. And we are to indeed practice holiness in our lives, to be a holy nation and to be a royal priesthood and ministering to one another and to do what is necessary to edify the body For all the people of God have been equipped for this very purpose to edify the body of Christ and to build each other up. It isn't just the job of the elders and the deacons to do this. It is the job of all the believers in order to minister to each other with various gifts, whether by prayer or encouragement or whatever. We are to be a royal priesthood as well. We have learned also within the book of Acts the kind of church that God blesses. We look back in Acts chapter 2, and we looked at the verses forty-two and following. What the church did. This is the kind of church that God blesses, and because of these things the Lord was adding to their number daily. That they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. These were things that they were just naturally doing. No one had to prompt them to do it, no one had to try to talk them into do it. These were things that they were naturally doing because they were hungry for the Word of God. They were hungry for the fellowship of believers. They desired the relationship of of prayer before the Lord. And because of that, the Lord used them mightily and added to their numbers. They sought to take part in each other's lives and to provide for each other's needs. To play out what it is to be a royal priesthood and ministering to each other. Well, this morning we're going to look at the church, the church's mission. Now, we have this idea, and at times I have been guilty of it as well. We have this idea that there are certain conditions that need to be in place in America for the church to be successful. We have to have this particular one as the president. We have to have these particular laws in place. We have to have these other laws done away with because they're immoral. And we think to ourselves, well, if that one gets into office, then things are just going to go terrible. And I mean, what are we going to do then? We have those, those times of, of doubt, wondering, how is this all going to work? But we have to remember that the kingdom of darkness has no effect on the kingdom of Christ whatsoever. And yet we, we work ourselves up. Pray for this nation. Pray for this nation. Or when something else goes wrong, you know this nation's going to hell in a handbasket. It's already going to hell in a handbasket. It doesn't matter if you put these certain laws into place in order to make this morality for everybody. Morality doesn't save anybody. Even establishing the law of God as the law of the land does not save anybody. It is the Gospel that saves. Because it's the Gospel that the Lord uses to apply to the heart. And so it doesn't matter then who's in power or who isn't in power or who gets this law passed or this law passed. It doesn't matter. Because the kingdom can still flourish and the people of God can still flourish and accomplish the mission. And at times the mission is even better under those conditions. How is it then that we can look in the future and to think that the future is going to be bright? There is a future for the kingdom of God. You know how we can still hold to that? Regardless of what happens in the nation. Because our sovereign king is the one who's in power. We've talked about Isaiah 6. How it is that Isaiah has the vision of Christ high and lifted up in the year the king Uzziah died. He says, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up in the train of His robe filling the temple. In the year of... Great crisis to the people of Israel. When their king who reigned after 52 years had died, Isaiah saw Adonai. He saw the Master. He saw the Sovereign. who wasn't pacing back and forth. He saw the Sovereign sitting on His throne. And that is no different than it is today, dear friends. Regardless of what happens, Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is not in a political office. Our hope is not in the law. And we have this wonderful example given to us in the book of Acts, of the beginnings of the church and the things that the church endured during those first number of years. Actually, if you want to get technical, the first 300 years of the church until the Edict of Milan, I think in 313 when Constantine made everything legal. The church was being persecuted all through those years. By the Jews, by the Romans, and yet the church flourished and the kingdom flourished. We see that here in Acts chapter 8. We see how the church conducted itself even in the midst of persecution. They did not give up. They did not turn their backs. They did not say it's too much. They did not keep complaining of what king was in power. They did not try to lobby for this particular law or that particular law. They held to the law of God and they sought to be model citizens and to follow what they knew was right before God. We hold on to this Americanized view of the kingdom, the Christian life, and that certain conditions have to be there for the church to be successful in the cause of Christ. And that's simply not true. Do we pray for the nation? We absolutely pray for the nation. Do we pray that God would set up one who would establish what is good in the sight of God? Yes, we do. We pray for those things. Do we call out the the government whenever they are passing immoral laws and, and, and advocating immorality? Yes, we do. But that doesn't mean that our hope is laid on those things being in place. It doesn't mean that the church cannot be successful if those things don't happen. Let's look at this passage here that gives us such a great example of how we ought to be. How we ought to conduct ourselves as the people of God. In Acts chapter 8, we'll read verses 1 to 8. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the inspired and inerrant authoritative and fallible Word of the Living God. Let us hear the Word of the Living God. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we give you praise and honor for who you are. You are indeed the only Sovereign, the Master, the Lord of all. You will accomplish what you set, set forth to do. You work all things after the counsel of your will, and you've declared the end from the beginning, and none can thwart your hand. Father, give us strength, give us boldness, give us resolve. Father, to do the work that You have called us to do. Having confidence in You that You will bring about the results. But to know, Father, that even in the midst of dark times, that You are still building Your church. And You are still bringing history to its intended end. Father, I pray that You would bless the preaching of Your Word and that You would take these words out of, out of Your Word. And that You would apply them to the hearts of Your people and accomplish great things with them. Father, shape us and mold us to be what You desire. May we honor You this day. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children say, Amen. Please be seated. So back in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, you have Stephen, who is a deacon who gives this great defense. He recounts the history of Israel. He's talking about how they were always stiff-necked towards the Lord, and he's pointing to the religious leaders and said, this is you. Because they are indeed rejecting the Lord Jesus. And so Stephen is put to death. He is being stoned. He sees the heavens opened up. He sees the Lord Jesus sitting at the right hand. And he falls asleep. The one who was there, who was in hearty agreement with his death, was Saul, who eventually became the Apostle Paul. But at this time, here he is uh, taking part in, in killing Christians. As it says here, he would ravaging the church. He was entering house after house and dragging men and women off, and he was putting them in prison. And when you get to chapter 9, he's actually on his way to Damascus with papers in order to put more in prison when the Lord appeared to him. There was a great persecution which started in Jerusalem against the people of God. Now you think about some of the characteristics of that persecution that we get not only from the book of Acts, but you also get from the Apostle Paul's own testimony Of course, that they were putting Christians to death, they were imprisoning them, they were beating them with whips and rods. Uh, You have the Apostle Paul that talked about him receiving 39 lashes on five different occasions from the Jews. You have the Apostle Paul that was actually stoned. He was left for dead. Then he went back into the city. uh, Started preaching again. Not only did the persecution break out here, But you also have the persecutions breaking out once the church is scattered. The church is being persecuted in Ephesus and in Corinth and different places where the gospel is going. To where the Apostle Paul and the other apostles are being thrown into prison. They are being beaten. And finally the Apostle Paul is being taken to Rome to stand before Caesar. You also have Rome that takes part in the persecution of the people of God. Throughout history, we know things that they had done, especially under Emperor Nero. You have the Apostle Paul, who was killed under Nero, as well as Peter. Rome would torture Christians, crucify them, feed them to the wild beasts. They endured poor living conditions, being in prison. You have one man in particular, Ignatius, who died in 110 A.D., He was on his way to Rome as he was penning all his epistles, writing to different churches, telling them not to come and try to intervene. He was going to face the wild beast and thereafter he would be with the Lord. Those particular animals that they would put the Christians in the arena with, lions, leopards, tigers, animals like that, that they would be killed. Not only Ignatius, but you had Polycarp. You had others throughout the church history who were being persecuted by Rome. And yet, by the time that you get to the time of Constantine, in the year 300 and some, you have the Roman Empire that is turned on its head, where now it's the Christian faith that is going to be the faith of the empire. Does that mean that everybody there was genuine? No. But it does mean that the church had such an effect on the society and effect on the culture and effect on the empire that by the time you get to this place here, that they were willing to embrace the Christian faith. You had the apostles again being beaten and arrested. You go back to there to chapter four. Chapter four, beginning of verse one. This is Peter and John. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid their hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. In chapter 5, you have them once again being arrested. And the religious leaders are now getting counsel from Gamaliel. They take his advice, and in verse 40, they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching, just, uh, preaching Jesus as the Christ very interesting that once they were arrested, that the angel of the Lord let them out and they went right back to the temple and began preaching again. And that's when they were once again arrested and brought before the religious leaders and then beaten. And then they go away feeling, feeling great and rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Again, we read of the Apostle Paul. All the beatings that he endured all the terrible things that that accompanied his ministry by the hands of the unbelieving. In the book of Acts, we're we're told about the martyrdom of James, the brother of John. In chapter 12, verse 2, he was put to death. This is a great persecution that is occurring in Jerusalem. And the people of God are still, in spite of everything that is going on, they are still engaging the culture. They are still engaging the people there trying to convert them to Christ. Preaching Christ. Evangelizing. They were not thwarted at all. You have the government of Jerusalem, obviously of Israel, that is not in favor of them, that is going to persecute them, that is persecuting them. Did they say... You know what? We need to put somebody in, in office over there and try to lobby for some certain kind of laws. No, they didn't do anything like that. Did Paul give his defense before the governor? Felix and Pestis? Herod Agrippa? Yes, he did. What was he doing? He's preaching the gospel to them. This was a terrible persecution that was occurring. Now, the interesting thing... That as this persecution is going on, here's what they did. Verse 4, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. They didn't go into hiding. They went about preaching the word. This is a general term for for proclaiming the good news. All the people did. The men, the women, everybody, as they are being scattered out, they are going everywhere and they're telling people about Christ. They're telling them of the good news of the Gospel. They participated. All the believers did in spreading the good news about Christ. They delighted in doing this. They delighted in telling others. They endured whatever came their way. And they did so with gladness. As what we read of the apostles there. Let me back up here. See what they had done in chapter 5 of Acts, beginning of verse 17. Listen to this. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is, the sect of Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers came and did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside." Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. Here's what they're doing. In the midst of the heavy persecution, they're going out and they're spreading the gospel. They're not stopping. They're not thwarted. They are serving a greater master. In Acts chapter 13, this is the apostle Paul. <clears throat> In spite of everything that is that is occurring, he's still preaching. Beginning of verse 44 of chapter 13. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. <clears throat> and the word of the Lord was beginning to spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What are they doing in the midst of persecution? They're still preaching the gospel. What are they doing after they get arrested and beaten? They go right back to preaching the gospel. And they rejoice before the Lord. Why is it that they can rejoice? After getting beat and getting put into prison. Because they are enduring the very hardships of our Lord Jesus and participating in His suffering. As the Apostle Paul would say in Philippians. I want to know Him and the fellowship of His sufferings, he says. That they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. For the sake of the truth and for the sake of the gospel. But even in the midst of that, the church is growing. The kingdom is growing. People are being converted. Even in the midst of these times. You the know, one thing about persecution, and it seems to be very true throughout all church history, is that when you have times of great persecution, it is this time that the church is. Is truly growing and advancing. Not when everything is good. When everything is good, we have what we have here in America. We have the lines so blurred, we don't really know who are believers and who aren't. When this stuff happens, the nominal Christians are weeded out and the true people of God stand firm. And they keep preaching the gospel. And the Gospel will flourish. Think of this. Think of these times of the Apostle Paul and all that he is enduring. His beatings. being uh, Having the crowds incited against him and all of this. Being put in prison a number of times. But by the time you get to Philippians and him riding Philippians from a prison cell, chained to a guard, he says this in Philippians chapter 1, beginning of verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has, been, has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. That the Gospel is now being known throughout the whole praetorian guard. These are the bodyguards of Caesar. And the Gospel is infiltrating even the praetorian guard. As Paul closes this epistle... <clears throat> he says in verse 22 of chapter 4, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Especially those of Caesar's household. Rome's persecuting the believers. The Jews are persecuting believers. But they keep on preaching and they keep on rejoicing and they keep on spreading the good news of the gospel so that even in the first century." That the gospel is getting to the praetorian guard, the very bodyguards of the Caesar, and into his house. Why? Because our sovereign Lord is the one who is building his church. Our sovereign Lord is the one who is advancing his kingdom. And none can thwart his hand. He is bringing all of these things to pass even in the midst of terrible persecution. So this tells us something. It helps us to understand God's sovereignty over suffering. So you have the Apostle Paul who says in Acts chapter 14, beginning verse 20, But well, while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derb. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. They knew and could rejoice in their sufferings and rejoice in their trials and rejoice in their tribulations, Because God was the one who was sovereignly making all these things to occur. He was sovereign over every aspect of it. He was in control over every bit of it. As Job says in Job 23, the Lord performs that which is appointed for me. The Lord is the one who controls the hearts of men. The Lord is the one who controls the kings. He controls governors. He controls governments. These are the things that or acknowledged by Daniel in Daniel chapter 2. Listen to some of these <clears throat> Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs, he removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is the Lord, He says, who removes kings and establishes kings. In chapter 4 of Daniel, verse 17, this is a judgment against Nebuchadnezzar by the angelic host. Verse 17, this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers And the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom He wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. It is the Lord who is the ruler. He bestows authority on whomever He wishes. And of course you have what Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 21. First one The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. This is the Lord. It is the Lord who performs all he desires. Who can thwart the hand of God? Who can somehow bring about such persecutions that the Lord didn't didn't plan for? And thwart His will, none can. The Lord performs all things according to His will and His desires. As Isaiah says, He's declared the end from the beginning, saying, My counsel will stand and I will do all My good pleasure. The Scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 that He works all things after the counsel of His will. History is coming to its intended end because it is the Lord who is guiding it. And everything that happens in between is... Decreed by the sovereign will of God. How does God react to the sons of men and their attempts to oppose Him? In Psalm 2, here's what is said here verses 1 to 5. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. How does the Lord react to the sons of men in their rebellion? He laughs them to scorn. And at His appointed time, He will speak to them in His anger and He will terrify them in His fury, it says. He is not dismayed by the wickedness of man. In Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. He frustrates the plans of the people. Regardless of what it is that they set forth to do, if it is not in accordance with the will of God, it is done away. This also includes the suffering of God's people. Do you think that the suffering of God's people is somehow outside of this control, that the enemy is just taking advantage of of having all of this particular freedom that God cannot stop it? We give the enemy way too much credit. It is because of these things that we are looking at here of how the Lord sits in the heavens and He He laughs at the rebellion of men. It is how the Lord looks at the sons of men and He frustrates their plans because it's not in accord with His. He is absolutely sovereign over it all. And it is because of these things that the people of God in the New Testament can have confidence and still rejoice before the Lord because these things are not somehow outside of the control of Almighty God. They are within His certain plan and they have certain results that would come from them. The suffering and persecution of God's people results in a number of things. Results in greater trust in the Lord. If everything was good in your life, And what trust would you really have? What dependence would you really be showing on the Lord? But when things start to go difficult, and then you start really having some tough times in your life, and some trials that come in your life, and perhaps even some suffering that comes in your life as a result of certain uh, medical ailments or whatever, then you develop a greater dependence on the Lord for strength, resolve, and clarity of mind as you endure such things. The faith grows in times of difficulty and in times of persecution. That's why the writers of Scripture, like James tells you, count it all joy when you endure various trials knowing that the trying of your faith produces patience and that patience have its perfect work. That's why the Apostle Peter, as many times as we've said it, that's why the Apostle Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which will come upon you for the testing of your faith as if some strange thing happened to you. It is for the testing of your faith. And it is in times of difficulties and sadness. This is when your faith grows because you have nowhere else to turn. You have only one that you can rely on who will supply everything that you need in order to bring you through. Only one. While men have good intentions, men will let you down. But the one who believes in Him will not be disappointed. So you develop a greater trust in the Lord as a result. You develop a greater sense of urgency. This is important because as you're looking here at this passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 8, that as they are enduring these persecutions, these great times of persecution... They're going around and they're preaching the Gospel. Because when you really think of it, they had developed within themselves this sense of urgency. This is a message we need to get out and we need to get it out now. Our lives are cut short. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next, but we know God is sovereign. He has given us a certain amount of time, so let us then use it. Let us use it wisely. Let us not waste it. There has to be a sense of urgency in the people of God. An urgency to tell others about Christ and not to wait. We live like we have tomorrow. We live every day like we have another. And there are people in our lives that we have not reached out to. There are people in our lives that we have not confronted boldly with the Gospel because we think we have more time and we'll, we'll get to it another day They didn't have another day. They didn't have tomorrow. They only had today. They had that sense of urgency to reach the people that they knew, the people that they loved, the people that were family. They knew that their lives could be cut short at any moment. They knew that they could be put into prison at any time and be separated from the very ones they wanted to reach. They knew that as the scripture says, behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. They believed that. You have the apostle Paul that says in Ephesians chapter five, verses 14 to 16, he says there, make the most of your time because the days are evil. Some of your translations may say, redeem the time because the days are evil. You have Moses who prays in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may may present to you a heart of wisdom. They wanted every moment to count for something. They had that sense of urgency that we need. You know, when you're reading the sermons of Jonathan Edwards, one sermon in particular is on that text of redeeming the time. By the time you get to the end of that sermon, And he's making his application to the people. And he's he's really driving it home with them. He says to the people, come with me. Come with me to the deathbed. And let you see the one who is about to leave. He's not thinking he should have worked more. He's not thinking he should have bought more things. He's only thinking, I wish I had more time. He says, now descend with me to the very bowels of hell and hear the groaning and the shrieking of the damned. I would give anything to have a moment of time. Your time. That you have. He says, redeem the time because the days are evil. Have that sense of urgency for the loss. Have that sense of urgency for the people that you love. Not only does it produce in us a greater trust in the Lord, a greater sense of urgency, but it produces a a greater desire for heaven and being in the presence of God when you endure such hard times. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is a little lengthy, but I want you to hear this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, for though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. While we look not at the things which are seen, But at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked, for indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage in knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight, we are of good courage, I say and prefer, Rather, to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. He could endure the momentary light affliction of this life because He knew the greater life to come. He had His hope fixed on the eternal and not on the temporal. You see this in the book of Revelation. Revelation. You see the joy of the saints that are there. You see how the Apostle Paul says again in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he says, but I'm torn between the two because I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. He knew what was yet to come. He knew that in the life to come, in the eternal life to come, that there would be No more sickness and pain. Because there God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. So the suffering of this life, just as it was for the people of God then, only made them yearn even more in their hearts for the life to come in Christ. And it was due as a result of the persecution and suffering that they endured. This is referred to in theology as the church militant. The church militant is the one that's still on the earth and the church is is the one who is engaging in the spiritual battles. The church that is tearing down the strongholds and every lofty thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and brings every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is the church that is constantly fighting with the old sinful parts that are still left with us and striving to do what is right in the sight of God. We are indeed at this moment the church militant. So then what can we do with this? I tell you, you can live your lives as those who have been stabbed. You can live your lives in the same way as the early church did. Though perhaps that persecution may come, may not come, we can indeed live as those who are scattered. We can pray for God to to give you the sense of urgency to reach out to those who are lost and perishing. The church needs that sense of urgency. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We may not have tomorrow You may not have those opportunities. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What else can we do? Do not waste the time that is given to you. Do not squander your time. As Jonathan Edwards has said, he says, I think it was Edwards, he says, the rich man lose everything that he has and gain it back in the same lifetime. But you cannot gain back the time that you waste. It's gone. But don't waste the time that is given to you. Use it wisely. Do not be at ease in Zion. But pray to the Lord, teach me to number of my days. That I may present to you a heart of wisdom. And lastly, do not lose heart, regardless of what happens in this nation. But do the work that God has appointed for you, and trust in Him that He is in sovereign control over it all. Do not lose heart, beloved, for, for your King is on His throne. Your king is never, ever anxious. Your king is never nervous about what happens among the sons of men when they strive to rebel against him. But he looks at them and laughs. And at his appointed time, he will terrify them in his fury. Redeem the time. And rejoice before the Lord the great gift of salvation have that sense of urgency in yourselves to tell others of the same and have confidence in your Lord let's pray together gracious God we have difficulties at times striving to keep our minds focused upon the truth of your word you are indeed sovereign. That you are in control. We let ourselves at times get in utter despair when things don't go our way in our nation or certain laws are passed or a number of other things. Father, help us to remember and to know that we are dealing with the sons of men. That's it. A creation. You are the creator who is guiding all things after your will. It is You that appoints kings. It is You that removes them. It is You that moves the heart of the king like a channel of water any way that You wish. It is You that uses the suffering and tribulation and trials to benefit the people of God. Ultimately for our good. But the things that we endure in service to Christ only produce for us a greater weight of glory that is yet to be revealed. Holy Father, let us remember the truth of your word. Let us not be discouraged, but to preach back to ourselves the promises of God. To preach back to ourselves of who you really are, according to your word. Father, keep us close to yourself. Keep us humble. Keep us to be bold. Let us be bold and confident. And to gladly and and, and to to rejoice in in whatever persecution may happen that we know we are doing the will of our King. And to rejoice in the fruit that You allow us to, to bear working through us whatever is pleasing in Your sight. Father, we love You because You first loved us. We give You all the praise and the honor for all things. Lord, in Jesus' name, we pray. And all of God's children, say, Amen.